gentlemen welcome back to season two episode one of pounding the table and what a year it's been this past 12 months it's been an absolute whirlwind from the craziness of covid to 10 million new retail accounts entering the markets we've gathered thousands and thousands of pounders around the table and it is time for season two last season we had nearly a half a million downloads which is actually insane to think about you know we had people from different financial maturities and we are here to democratize the markets from hedge fund managers to that nine-year-old who's trading mommy and daddy's hard-earned cash we are here to pound the table with you so without further ado my co-host 24 year old founder of peak life capital Anthony Ohion. What a warm welcome, Avi. I'm so happy for season two. It feels like it's a breath of fresh air. So much time we've spent in the last year, and I can't wait to just dig in even more this season. Quick disclaimer here. Everybody knows the rules. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our social media accounts, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitations. And for those of you who are brand new to Pounding the Table, you know, you're starting at a good time. It's season two, but I'll tell you guys a little wrap about who we are and what we do here. It's a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony Ohian, yours truly, talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week, we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will get impacted. That's right, Tony. We're going to be getting back to our roots as promised, which means we'll start each podcast with recent market news, some ideas to think about what's happening in the current market environments. And we're coming in hot. Episode one, we're going to be bringing you updates from the heads of the table. We're going to be answering some questions from the audience. And that's right, folks. We got a bunch of mini monsters ready to rock out the gates this year. So Tony, let's get right into it. Last week, we saw Nancy Pelosi, who's just absolutely ripping Tesla calls on Robinhood. She's sitting in Congress. She's got calls coming in from Amazon, letting her know the Jedi contracts are leaving Microsoft. But, you know, not all of us can get into hair salons during COVID. As always, we got to start the pod with So Tony. What are your yeah, thoughts? So Tony, it's <laughs> my favorite part of the pod. Every week, you, I just can't wait for you to just ask. So Tony, let's get into some of these macros, right? We started this pod again 12 months ago, and we've been able to see some major trends take place. As you mentioned, we really want to start to demystify some of these moves that are happening over the market over time, which of course we call cycles. You know, you think about it, we got businesses, nature, people working out and diets, you know, what do these things have in common? They're all cyclical and in many cases, <laughs> seasonal, right? Like no one's coming to visit you in Florida during hurricane season, but maybe in wintertime, I'll come post up at your door, right? Yeah, one of the snowbirds. most, <laughs> and one of the most important things, which is sometimes almost too obvious is looking at these trends over time. A hundred percent. As crazy as the markets might seem and as hard to understand, right? I think of it as a puzzle and it might not be completely clear what image you see from there, but over time you can start to get the corners, you can start to round the edges and you can start to kind of see the image that it's supposed to be. And you may never look at it a hundred percent clear. You probably never will, but if you can make out what you're looking at, you'll be able to be successful and profitable. So we thought it'd be a great idea to start bringing in a lot of these trends that just happen over the years because people don't really ever think about it. You know, you're more focused on the present day-to-day -day move 
but you're playing within this realm that has a bunch of trends that's, that go over you every month. One of the most shocking facts I think just upends every single day of trading is this recent report by Bespoke Investment Group, which revealed that one of the most profitable trades on Wall Street since 1993 was literally just to buy the S&P 500 on the close and sell it on the open. And if you had done that, you would have seen an 800% return to date versus if you'd done the opposite, where you would buy the open and sell the close, you would end up with a 10% loss over that time. So just knowing that you can have that data to refer back on to maybe I want to start dollar cost averaging. Well, statistically, it'd make more sense to start buying on the close if you want to add to your positions. And if you try to trim out of something, maybe statistically, it makes more sense to start selling on the open. So obviously, this doesn't work every day. This is a law of large numbers thing. You know, N equals 32. That's well more than 32 pieces of data there because that's every day since 93. But that's definitely something I started just thinking about more in the last year since I've learned about it. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? You, you kind of take a look and zoom out as we always talk about it. And you do see these trends that happen, you know, starting from January, we have this January barometer, right? So looking back all the way from 1945, if January is up, especially if it's up more than 5%, that's typically been bullish for the market. That's held true 75% of the time, right? And then there's, of course, that old saying, sell in May, go away. You know, you've got these managers chilling with Bieber in the Hamptons. So typically the indices don't see a ton of volume there. And then going back again to the 1970s, November 1st to April 30th has been considered some of the best markets in the year, right? You got the big boys ordering seamless, getting some sushi, heads down, making the magic happen. But Tony, this January we were down, right? So we're heading into the summer months. What's going to happen now? Yeah. So the cool thing about statistics is if it proves something one direction, it may be able to prove something the other direction, but it also could have no correlation. So for the January barometer, if it's actually down on January, there's no real correlation and nothing you can really get out of that information, which is good. So it's like an only a one-sided positive you know, indicator, but there are a ton that continue. And I just want to point out, we're talking about the S&P 500 here. That's what everyone uses for all these statistics. That doesn't necessarily mean like growth stocks, right? Because you've seen very clearly how the S&P 500 with all of its fang and all of its value and cyclical in there it goes very inversely against ARC and other growth names, especially in this market now that's balancing out from COVID where the IWM Russell 2000 was down so much and industrials, banks and cyclicals got killed. Now we're just kind of figuring out this middle ground. So things I think are going to be different for the next year or so. But I think these are good things to consider anyway, because in the last two years, software has dove at the time it's supposed to dive. Right. And like small caps have ran at the time it's supposed to statistically on average. So things do stand true. And I just don't know if it's going to be standing true the same or even exacerbated effects or just no effects. So we'll have to see. One thing I'm really looking forward to this year is October because that's the scary month. Right. And it's not just because it's Halloween. That's when many of the market crashes have occurred. So you got the panic of 1907, Black Tuesday, 1929 depression, Black Thursday, 1929, Black Monday, 1929, Black Monday, 1987 flash crash. So October is definitely the most volatile month, according to CFRA research from 1950 to the present day, the S&P 500 registers more daily moves of at least 1% in October than any other month. So that's the month for volatility. And especially in crazy scenarios like the economy is right now, I would expect to see a lot of volatility towards October, knowing also that the Fed has started to talk about this tapering, which if it were to happen, in my opinion, things could start as early as 2022, and if not in December of this year. So I'm not positive at all. 
I think the Fed's going to do what's right and make sure that they don't do anything that they can't reverse very quickly and make sure that we maintain a good economy and a good market. Definitely something to consider because fate loves irony, right? Like the scariest month would be when they start to taper and when things would happen. So I'm always cautious about things like that. A little superstitious. I don't step on cracks. (laughs) Well, the beauty of coming after Halloween, right? There's some things that are born and those things, of course, are the mini monsters that we talked about last year. So the growth names, like you mentioned, absolutely ripped and those smaller cap names really started to birth actually into like February. I remember it was like probably the middle of February where I was like, I'm the best damn trader in the world. I'm quitting my job. And then of course, <laughs> and then that know, regression hit so and fast. Then and then CCIB, regression hit instantly. Yeah. Just completely crashed down. But you know, coming back to some of these trends, obviously the Santa Claus rally, right? We got funds dancing and prancing like they're Santa's little reindeers. When the stocks rally the last week in December, the average gain for that period has been 1.3 since 1969, 75% of the time. How's that for some stats? That's pretty good, man. I like numbers. They don't lie. We just went through pretty much the stock calendar there. But there's always those 30-day and quarterly cycles, right? You've got the quad witching every quarter, which we talk about here. And every time it happens, we'll explain it again. You've got rebalances from all the indices and funds. And you've got a lot of different things that just happen naturally, like companies can run up into their earnings if it's a good cycle. They have four earnings regardless, right? So there's a lot of events that play all the time. And we're here to cover all that stuff for you guys. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing, I, I tweeted about this the other day, right? Like, We've seen this. And and again, I'm the retail investor here. Like I've been learning with you guys along the way. And thankfully I get to talk to Tony every week, but you know, what I noticed was that it's no longer just like earnings that are just that huge catalyst, right? It's basically the run-up into earnings is where you catch a lot of those gains. So Tony, talk to us a little bit more about kind of this run-up and what can we expect coming into this earnings season, of course. Yeah, I think for as long as I've been investing, I've always seen big tech run in the summer months into earnings reports here. I remember trading this in high school, making the biggest options trade I did at the time. I bought one Google contract for like 300 bucks and sold it for like six grand. And it was the craziest thing ever. I had like a $10,000 account at the time. It was very, very big for me. But ever since then, I've been following Google, Amazon, Facebook during these summer month earnings. And of course, a lot of companies that kind of get towards that sphere, right? You've got things like SC Shop, different names that are getting much bigger that are going to start becoming the blue chips that if those FANG weren't already around, these would be the FANG that are becoming what FANG is today, right? So those are definitely things to consider. I think that's when things move a lot. But what I like to do with earnings, I look for a bunch of the companies that I really like, and I lighten up a little bit into some earnings reports if they've ran a lot. And then I wait to see if maybe a company I don't own or a company I have already trimmed and I have a little bit of and I want to size up. I like to look at my watch list and see what's down on their earnings reports with a good earnings report. Because a lot of the time, stocks like to have this false reaction. They like to zig when they zag, but then they zig again. They like will just drop 30 points or rip 30 points. And then the reaction will actually take place a couple of weeks later. So if I see a stock that's down on a good earnings report that I think is misinterpreted by the markets, of course, I understand this price discovery, right? Like those are the fundamental events that start pricing companies for the long run. But once again, people can be wrong, especially in the short term and analysts can be wrong as well all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm kind of looking at this earnings report, seeing what companies I really like, you know, SC, Twilio, Square, whatever it may be, that I've maybe sized a little bit out of if they're at their highs. And I'm waiting to get back in to see if they get that misreaction from earnings, because I love the run-up that comes right after with also options like the premium gets very cheap the day after it drops from earnings. And you can buy like further out leaps for even the next earnings report if you think it'll revert to that previous close and higher. 
Yeah, Tony, you have all these rules. My rule now is never play options into earnings. Yeah, I agree. You had mentioned I always go kind of a week after. Is that is that's kind of your rule? Yeah, well, I mean, what I think about options, and I think a lot of people could benefit from learning this, is you don't need to expect it to move like 400, 600, whatever percent on these options, because it's very hard. Those options are already very much so inflated. They expect the move, right? The implied volatility, that's the number that the options will tell you on that week. And I've seen sometimes like, if the stock's hundred bucks, that option at the money for the hundred dollar strike will be $10. This stock has to go to 120 for me to double my money. I think a lot of people like to play these like YOLO options, lotto. Those are fun. Like I do them sometimes too, but I don't really often do them. I prefer to do spreads. So it's hard to completely explain this in like a short podcast, what a spread is, but you can just look it up on YouTube. It's a put or a call debit spread. And basically you're benefiting from buying an option and selling another option against it. So you can lock in a certain fixed price. So instead of having to go to the 120s, that's your two bucks to make money. You can do a 100 buy call and a 110 sell call and capture the difference in between minus the premium and just look that up on YouTube. But that's the way that I like play options for earnings. It's just only through spreads because it's such high premium. The odds of you losing are really high, but if you can also benefit from being half the house and half the participant, then you have a fair chance of playing the game and winning in terms of math, honestly. We got breaking news here with another variant of COVID coming in. And we started this podcast you know, literally because of COVID, there's no chance that I would no be way. sitting in front of a microphone every single week. But we have to do this because founders, they love it. They need it. But right on cue, there's fucking Delta variant. What's the second one? It's like they're sprouting like, uh, new legs. They're going like the, down the Greek SC. alphabet, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, what is causing? Like, are people going to react the same way as they reacted the first time? I think when people continue to have a stimulus hit them, right, it's called like habituation. You get used to it. It becomes like a habit. You get more used to it. You're less nervous. You're less likely to panic sell, less likely to panic buy. We have a COVID headline, a COVID headline. You've seen it take place and, and matter less over time. But yeah, the S&P 500 dropped 70 points Thursday overnight because of this global market fear of Delta variant. And like, of course, now we've got the Lambda variant coming out too, the whole Greek alphabet. But once the foreign markets closed, the U.S. market stabilized and obviously had a really good rally back into Friday. And ARK actually held up pretty well during this entire thing. You look at the S&P 500 was down still 40 or 50 and ARK was pretty much flat down like half a book. So this is better for the work from home names. Like it was the first time, right? It's just less better for them. And it's less bad for the other names because we know we've already like dealt with this once we've gotten out of the woods. So I think you'll see these headlines. I think that you'll get a lot of broadening out because it'll make people buy value. It'll make them buy growth. It'll make them sell or buy both. And things will start to run more in tandem. But I don't think the markets are going to continue to stay really, really discombobulated from each other and separated. You'll see a more broadened connection over the time, like in the next 12 to six months, especially like if there's very volatile moves up or down, things will generally trend the same way. This is not too volatile, right? People forget that we ran so much in the S that a down 100 day is not the same as when it was 2,500. It's very different percents. Yeah. And certainly don't want to make light of COVID, of course. Like I had COVID, you know, a lot more people are actually having- My parents these, had COVID. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of vaccines are coming out, right? And so here in America, it's not as crazy as we've seen overseas, but these new variants that are coming out do tend to spook people, right? It's, it's like Halloween all over again. So- transitioning a bit here to what we typically talk about feels like the boys are back in town and we've seen these big cap breakouts so tony you think fang's coming back or what's going on 
Yeah, I mean, this definitely goes back into that things run into earnings situation where that's definitely part of it. But once again, people are figuring out where to put their money because these inflation fears are still here on one side. But also if the markets are strong and the general economy strong, FANG usually does well regardless. The reason the markets have been ripping, ripping so hard is that five stocks make up 42% of the NASDAQ. That's Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google. So when you see the NASDAQ ripping crazy, it's those big five that are really driving it. And they also make up, I think, around 25, give or take. I haven't checked that in a while, of the S&P 500. So those ripping have really brought the S&P from under 4,000 to well over it. And of course, you've got the value rotation. Am I going to be chasing these moves? Not necessarily. I know that Amazon's probably going to continue just because I got a new CEO. So maybe there's a potential for a stock split there because Bezos didn't want to do it. And now different management. But also the opportunity cost of if Amazon ran 1,500 points the last time it broke out of the one-year base, if it runs 1,500 more points, and already it's ran a couple hundred, so maybe they call it like 1,200 more points, what's the percentage there? Like 20, 25%. So it's not really my play, but it's definitely something that I could see happening just in terms of like strength in the markets. These big techs have been basing for a long time. And I really want to touch on this for just a second. That could be what's happening with a lot of the like SEs and Roku's and Twilio's and those names, the Shopify's of the world, they've been basing for a while too. And this could be that year for them to do that. And then next year they could go, but who knows? It's just something to think about. And what we've seen here, you know, I was on, on my bachelor party and it was so funny. We were in the liquor store and and some guy comes in, he's like, are you guys hiring? And no joke, the guy goes, you're hired. And then I was like, what is going on right now? But the reality was like, no one was actually filling out applications. No one really wanted to work. Of course, that's going to start to end here, you know, in September. So despite seeing all these help wanted signs across America, Rihanna's getting super happy because people are getting back to work, 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 work. The U.S. added 850,000 jobs, beating consensus of 684,000, which is the highest since August of last year. So people are getting back to work for the summer. Major industries have added jobs with leisure and hospitality is about 343,000. Government added right under 200,000. Professional and business services, 72,000. Education and health, 59,000. Retail trade, 67,000. And manufacturing, 15,000. I just want to talk about this just for a second. That's really interesting because the leisure and hospitalities, that's what got hit the hardest during COVID, right? So that's the area where we need more jobs that are getting back to work like ASAP. And seeing that the majority, almost half of the jobs came from that sector, you know that the economy is actually broadening out. There's not a ton of manufacturing jobs. And I think that it is going to be more like that. I think you're not going to see a huge comeback in manufacturing jobs in that way, because I believe that things will get more and more automated over time. I was going to say robots. All the time. <laughs> robots, man. Yeah. Robots will be coming in. And, and you saw all these flights getting canceled with American Airlines. You know, it's been pretty crazy. So hopefully people are getting back to work. And Tony, looking at the unemployment rate, you always say the unemployment rate is bullshit, which is crazy for <laughs> me as a retail investor. What, what do you mean by that? So I think people really have to understand that the unemployment rate is not as in context as like the real unemployment rate. So if you look at the normal unemployment rate, that was obviously what was all over the media everywhere in the last like year. And the data here for the month of like May to June is that it went up to 5.9% from 5.8%. So it got a little worse. But once again, a lot of Americans are entering the job market at a faster rate this month, which is actually great. If you look at the real unemployment rate, which this accounts for those discouraged workers and those holding part-time jobs because of whatever economic reasons, that dropped 0.4% to a pandemic era low of 9.8%. So that's the first one under 10 since back in March of 2020. And I think that's more important because it shows the rest of the people who are looking, but they're still not able to find a job because maybe that space has been taken over. Maybe that's been like replaced by automation. 
It's very important to pay attention to that, I think, just in terms of understanding the context of how the economy is recovering, right? Looking at manufacturing jobs versus the leisure and hospitality. You're seeing the shift in the economy to being more normal every day. Tony, let's shift gears real quick. You know, last year we had SPAC attack. This year we've seen IPOs. Didi was a big one. Keyword being was. What exactly happened with Didi in China there? I mean, there's just been nonstop China FUD coming out, right? And that's just basically like fear to make you try to sell your names. But it was a brand new American depository receipt. So that's basically just like a name from a Chinese company listed on the U.S. market. But the problem was China ordered them to take them off the app store and the stock fell billions of dollars. So there's definitely a lot of fear around China now because of that and investing in the names. But one thing I will say is that there are still very good quality companies that are not in the United States, like C-Limited. Granted, that's in Singapore. Not every company is lumped into this, but granted, China, it is the CCP. So they could pretty much do whatever they want. I think there are way better opportunities now than figuring that out. But things can change really quick in the narrative. We were just scared about inflation going to the moon and the rates going to 5%. And now we're all buying growth stocks again. And now we're thinking like value is never going to come back. So likely it'll come back. I'm not dipping my feet into China names right now. I'm just keeping it on watch because misery can turn into an opportunity pretty quickly. And now's the point where we get into Michael Detman's favorite part of the show. We talk about the 10-year dropping. What's going on with that? And why is that so important? The yield curve has flattened out, which is good. Looking at these long dated rates, they've came down quite a bit. And the 10 year is also dropping a lot since the recent Fed meeting. It was under 1.3 recently. I'm not sure if it is right now at the time of this recording, but that's obviously benefited growth stocks a lot. ARC went all the way from 97 to almost 130 before retracing back a bit, which is okay. Like that's a big run. And it's better to digest the run than go parabolic like a lot of the software names and look like absolute dog shit. So that's very important, I think, for the long term broadening out of the markets. We want to see companies catch up to those valuations which came from this crazy, probably once in a lifetime, hopefully once in a lifetime situation that we had in 2020. So I think it's definitely an interesting year moving forward, but I will be cautious. Like, I don't know if I'm Tony Topsavvy. I don't know, but I do know that we're closer to that SPX 5,000 target. But once again, we could end way before we hit the target. And also just thinking about like, what's coming up. You could raise rates. You could start the tapering on repo purchases, bond purchases. Like you, you really don't know what the Fed is going to have in store because the story is starting to change a little bit. Powell is always like on the ball. He's saying the same thing. We've got the full use of the tools of the Federal Reserve to combat any he's situation. That money printer just burr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's got this situation on lock for now. But once again, like it's a delicate line. He was able to comment with just his words. So the man's got skills. And I'm going to be watching every word he says moving forward and just make sure you watch the markets, right? Bond yields went up way before the Fed had to worry about inflation or anything, right? So sometimes the real market knows more than the guys running it. All right, Tony. In the past year, we've talked about so many names in the last year. We literally spent hours and hours, probably more than I ever studied in college. We created this 50-page document called The Bible, and we had some massive movers. Really interesting to see some of these companies grow. You know, you see some of these new heads of the tables. And for those of you who are new, the heads of the tables are some of the strongest names that we talk about, the ones that have not as much volatility than some of these other ones that are very hyper growth that So these are the strong, kind of the base of the bonsai, as we always talk about. And we'll be going through new heads of the tables every single week. Of course, we'll bring back the mini monsters. Everyone loves those, right? And we'll start to build out PTT Bible 2.0. But before you guys say, Pounders, you guys have been talking about this name over and over again. We have some massive news to talk through on why we are pounding the table on none other than our favorite, SE. 
So C limited, we first pounded on the podcast at 120, but Tony, what'd you have it at like 38, 40 like, or something? I, I was screaming this at like 42, 45. So this thing started off as this mini monster, but now it, was. it went, it it went to the, the, the three-headed monster, which is now a five-headed monster operating in Southeast Asia. So none of the China fears, they are out of Singapore. Talking about what they do, people are probably familiar with the first three pillars, gaming, e-com, finance. They got Garena, which is an absolute cash cow from the gaming sector, Shopee from e-commerce, C-Money from the financial side. But what I'm really excited about is some of their new legs, right? They got the AI pillar called CAI Labs, aka Sale, and an investment side pillar, which is C Capital. And so I'll be excited to see what other legs they're coming out with. I, I just imagine a world where they're going to have some sort of an AWS or a CWS or something like that. Yeah. But one thing I definitely want to talk about is this game of risk they're playing, right? They're not only now in Southeast Asia, they're coming over and taking over South America. So talk to us a little bit about that and, and why that's important. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I just got to say SE might be like one of my favorite stocks of all time. I think I've said this on the pod so many times, my favorite head of the table, not in terms of like, it's going to make me the most highest CAGR return, whatever, but my favorite company that's being run on the markets today is SE. Cause I think the execution, the management, the vision, the reasons why they're doing what they're doing and how they're executing. I've just not really seen any other companies do it like this since Tesla. If a company does really, really well, it can take that one leg that they're doing that they're already generating a ton of cash from and crushing and just start building out into a multifaceted monster. And that's why we call them the heads of the table because they've done things that prove them over time and they will continue to dominate and go into new sectors and bring in new customers for their entire suite of services. And I really want to focus on Latin America here because I really want to touch on the approach that SE has in the markets that it is approaching all over the world. I know I've spoken a lot about this on Twitter between Mealy and SE, and I'll discuss Mealy maybe in another podcast. But for me, you know, if there's ever a discussion or a question about like which of the two will do better, it's like I always think of the one that's coming in and invading and really doing well as the one that I want to put my money in, right? Because the risk is not that they're going to get smaller. The risk is that the other person will get smaller and they'll get bigger. And that's just the most simple logic to me. So that's why I've like doubled down on SE and continue to. But in Latin America, it's really why I'm interested in this company because I think they can do this to any place in the world that's got a low penetration of e-commerce because of their system. And the main predication on this thesis is that while most people don't have laptops, infrastructure for payments, infrastructure for really anything, most people have cell phones. And that's the way that SE gets into your heart and mind. So the first thing about SE in Latin America is that Latin America is the largest retail e-commerce sales grower of 2020. That's very important to know, especially if there's 700 million people living there, give or take. Brazil makes up 40% of the market in Latin America for commerce. And there's only a 4.7% penetration rate amongst all of Latin America. So think about how much the United States has already been penetrated by e-commerce. We haven't even done the tip in Latin America yet, right? Pun intended. So Brazil, as of 2021, is the 13th largest country by GDP too. So it's no slouch there in terms of the money that they can get in the TAN that's affected. So if you look at the data, it's actually insane. In Q2 of 2021, they gained 14 million new downloads versus 8 million in the same quarter of last year. Whereas Mealy, which clearly, of course, has that larger base initially, went from 8 million to 6 million, which is insane. Right. And that's from Sensor Tower, right? So that's verified data. But once again, we know that's SE strategy. They hit you with the mobile phone and then they try to bring you into their ecosystem, which has all these different legs that you can use. And I'm sure they'll have more that you can use in the future. I'm not even saying that I'm bearish on Melee at all. 
I don't want Fintuit to come and attack me. I'm just saying that I like the thesis for SC far more now. And if it's even 1% doubt in my mind, if I think that the other person is already succeeding very well and there's a threat to the other side, even if it's a 1% threat, like I go for the person who's doing the Trojan horse and sneaking in versus the guy who's already in the castle who doesn't know that guy's sneaking in. And even if they do know, it doesn't matter. That person's coming to the door. So I like to be with the person who I see is growing the fastest in a new space. So Melee's already dominated Latin America. We know what it's capable of, and I'm sure it'll be successful in the future. But I do think that SC is going to take a huge piece of it and there's a bunch of the pie to go around. I am saying one's better than the other. I'm not saying that I'm bearish on Melee, but that's because there's only a 4.7% penetration. Right? Like that's so much more pie that hasn't been even baked yet. So each of these guys will come and attack this. But what I really want to look at here is the download rating. So I, I looked at this stat when I was trying to do Amazon selling like a while ago. Amazon gets 200 purchases on average for every one review it gets on an item. I don't even think that's actually like applicable to everything, but I just know that it, it helps you normalize amount of users for ratings. So you look at SC's got 155,000 ratings in the store and Mealy has 843,000. So obviously Mealy's got a huge presence in Latin America. It's been there for so many years, two decades, right? But what I will say is that SC is really doing a great job there. And that's all I want to highlight here. So the monthly active users on SC's chart really looks like a 45 degree plus angle. And, and that's enough for me to know that they're doing well in that space. The thing looks like if you zoomed out on the S&P 500 and just drew one line from the bottom left corner to the bottom right, that's the move it's going in. And so when I see that, I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm sure it's going to continue. And the thing about exponentials is they start more linear, right? So that'll go eventually exponential. And so I know that about math. So I know it'll do that for its ratings. And of course, we had to look at the website because Mealy has a far, far, far larger dominance on the web just because they're the ones that create the infrastructure for pretty much everything in Latin America for now. And that's going to be SE's difficulty. But just going back to the website here, the amount of visits in the last six months change for Mercado Libre website was negative 26% versus SE's shoppies.com going up 25%. And then amazon.com Brazil went down 23% as well. Yeah, Tony, we got to share this out on Twitter. This is actually insane to look at. So looking at that web visits from Mercado Libre from December of 2020, they had 346 million visitors. And then in May 21, they actually came down to 255 million, whereas Shop E went from 33.8 million to 42 million. And even looking at, at Amazon, right? Amazon's obviously this beast. They went from 115 million to 88 million. So yeah, this is math. This is fucking insane. And if you look at the average visit duration, that one's actually the most baffling to me. Mercado Libre has got six minutes and 40 seconds, whereas Shopee has got 11 minutes and 30 seconds. And Amazon's four minutes and 19 seconds, almost 420 for all you smokers out there. But this is uh, this is insane. This is wild. This is yeah. math. This is real. I mean, it, that's the thing. Like the numbers don't lie. And I'm not saying like, this could be for a myriad of reasons. Seasonality, the fact that Mercado Libre already like blew up during the time. And now you've got an alternative. So people are trying it out. Right. But if everything's moving in the right direction for me, does not mean that I don't think Mealy is going to succeed. I just think that SC is obviously doing really damn well there. They had a 25% increase with twice the amount of page visits duration, while Mealy had a 26% decrease with half the page visits duration. Like that's huge. You spend twice the amount of time if you're on SC's website. So anytime a company expands, obviously they're going to have expenses on their balance sheets. But as we know, growth stocks, we don't really care about the expenses as long as the revenues continue to grow and grow and grow, right? So what, what do you think allows this company to expand so quickly and, and efficiently? Obviously, we love Forrest Lee, but do you think Forrest is going to continue to run? So I always say this. I think there's only three ways to really, really succeed in the world. And you got to be first or you got to be the smartest or you have to cheat. And any company that cheats doesn't really succeed. 
And you don't necessarily have to really be first if you are also the smartest. So I think that the approach that they're taking is being the first and they're using one of the best strategies I could ever devise. Like, I mean, these guys are doing the highest reward, but with a calculated risk to succeed in markets that have just not been tapped into. And the reason that they're able to succeed so quickly in Latin America, in my opinion, is because they've been already able to succeed in a part of the world that already had really no infrastructure that they built out all of Southeast Asia for all of the things that they're bringing into their ecosystem. And I think they're just mimicking that strategy all over the world. And you'll start seeing that more and more over time. When you build out new infrastructure, there's going to be a lot of costs that are actually associated with that, right? And Mealy does have the advantage still that they've been there. They got everything kind of built out already. And another question I kind of have that I just thought of is, you know, thinking it's like the hometown hero, right? This is where you come in, but is there like certain laws that maybe it'll be nice to, to Mercado Libre versus SC being from Singapore? As companies get bigger, they get stronger. They're able to hold their own ground, even with governments and institutions that are rivaling them. So I think both will do well because there's only 4.7% of the pie eaten away. But also you have to consider what countries they're from, right? People have foreign fear of companies now. So knowing that SC is in Singapore, which is one of the best financial places in the world, compared to Argentina, which, you know, if Argentina defaults could pretty much take over Mealy, it's like issues there that can go with both companies. If we zoom out, we can see that SC's reach is going to probably eventually be all over the world, right? And it's going to be one of the coolest strategies ever, in my opinion. You're going into markets that have super low penetration, right? And they have the leading share in Southeast Asia. That's the reason why, like, Tokopedia and Gojek have to work together. And that's the reason why Grabo and Poly, these companies that are in Southeast Asia are worried about SE. And that's why they need money and they need partnerships and teaming up with each other and consolidating to even try to think about rivaling this company. And that's because SE's already got the majority share there in Southeast Asia. And it's only 5% penetration of retail. So they literally added another continent, right? That's the Latin American piece that they're just starting to get into. So there's a lot of growth to come from that. What I will say is I actually think it's going to be a beneficial second mover advantage because Mealy has already built out so much of this infrastructure. They've already done the foundation work. Like Tesla has laid out superchargers across the country. And eventually like those will probably be working with other car companies, right? Like licensing out. So I think that stuff's very important. I also just want to note here that like SC is operating in pretty much 2 billion people market right now. And that's out Southeast Asia, Taiwan, Latin America, and some other countries. So they have dominated and they've done such a good job of getting all over the world now. And so it's just about how much money do they need and how well can they execute without burning too much cash, right? Riding the fine line like Amazon did and expanding and growing and growing and growing in many different legs and many different sectors and different countries and continents without turning too much of a loss. And so that's actually what I want to talk about is like Garena, right? And so far it's been from Garena and that's C-Limited's digital entertainment and gaming division. That's their cash cow in the sense of AWS being Amazon's cash cow. So they developed Free Fire, which was a self-developed global hit um, that's the most downloaded mobile game globally for 2020, and it's maintaining this lead position for the second consecutive year. So it's definitely the most talked about game for Garena, and it comes for a good reason. It's the highest grossing mobile game in Latin America and, and Southeast Asia in 2020, and it's the highest grossing mobile game in India for 2020. So think about all those countries that we're talking about within those places, how many of those people have phones, which is like a lot of people have phones. And that's how they get into that ecosystem. And so that's why we're talking about Garena. First of all, it's their most profitable leg. And it's also how they get people on that phone to get into the rest of their ecosystem. And the best part about it is that they're the distributors of a lot of games and they take a cut of the revenue generated in a lot of these instances. Tony, you were talking to me about like some of these development partners they're working with. They're not like little itty bitty companies. They got the mighty Tencent, Riot Games, EA Sport, NetEase Games, Nexon. You know, I haven't heard of those last two, but 
Riot, Tencent, and EA. Those are monsters. Some of the biggest benefits that Garena gains here is they have exclusive publishing rights. So what that means is they're retaining the majority of the gross billions, sometimes in the 65 to 80% range. There's a lot coming up here besides Free Fire in 2021 and beyond. So talk to a few of these other games that may be coming up. Yeah. And the only reason I wanted to touch on Garena for a few minutes here is because that is the way that they're going to be able to fund all these expansions until they become profitable in all the places that they're doing e-commerce, AI labs, venture capital, all these different things that they're working on now. They're getting money from this one leg that really succeeded. And once again, that's a common theme we want to talk about on the podcast. A lot of the companies from 2020 that dominated will continue to dominate because they have one or two business legs, which crushed. And now they're looking to innovate on what's being innovated. So looking for C right here, Garena has got Undone coming out. Another first person shooter developed by Tencent and Quantum Studios. Uh, Fantasy Town, which is really cool. I know a lot of people talk about Farmville, and this is like pretty much similar to that. And what I really wanted to touch on for Free Fire is that they're expanding it in a very interesting way. So people are like, well, what happens when Free Fire doesn't become hot anymore and goes away? Is C not going to be able to get the cash flow to be able to do all the other things that they want to do? No, they're already expanding upon many, many games. They have a lot of partnerships with a lot of different amazingly huge companies all over the world. And this Free Fire expansion is called Pet Rumble, and that's a multiplayer social deduction game, which is kind of like Among Us. The cool thing about this is that it connects to the Free Fire game itself, but its only connection is the actual pets from the main game. So it's definitely kind of touching on the younger side. Maybe kids will want to be playing this game. Like I remember playing with uh, Nintendo Pets or whatever that thing was called. So I could see them expanding into a bunch of these different like iterations of the big games that they have because mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to create new IP than to rebrand good IP that's already going to be very popular. It's like Candy Crush. They have like the regular Candy Crush and they have like Candy Crush pets. They have Candy Crush crush whatever the hell that is so the coolest thing to me is what you were telling me about garena world right they had over a million people literally as attendees watching people play video games so this is a lot different than me just chilling in my bedroom playing some madden back in my day there's literally people are going to this like it's the super bowl so maybe while you won't find me at one of these gaming events tony will probably be there Fortnite games whatever this kid plays (laughs) but touching on some of the vr for these next generation games you mentioned like ai labs was something that i was super excited about being another leg of se Right. I'm very excited about their transition into this like next era of gaming that they mentioned. They want to be working on VR and AR solutions. So like virtual reality, augmented reality solutions. I'm very excited for all that going on because I like play Pokemon Go sometimes and they have a really sick augmented reality aspect of it. I'm sure it's going to be huge for all these first person shooter games. And maybe they'll use this to like enhance all other aspects of their businesses, like from the e-commerce part. Like I'm sure AI analytics would be very helpful there but as well as like developing new devices, right? So Tony prediction, like they're gonna be making some type of Oculus Rift, weird AR VR device that you're gonna be very included with Free Fire and whatever other games they have. And then also, I think it's kind of crazy that they are focusing on this hardware aspect where like other companies sometimes start with hardware and then start selling the service, but they're buying up Malaysian banks, they're expanding their payment network. So this thing's kind of firing on all cylinders. Their business legs for e-commerce were up 153% year over year for gross orders, right? And it's a very similar model to Amazon. You got the fixed costs initially, and then it has really, really high scaled profitability. You had over 3.4 billion in mobile wallet total payment volume in quarter one. That's up 200% year over year, right? So that's going to be a much higher margin business for them too. Once they scale that out, right? Like Alipay or like Apple Wallet, they're going to grow that over time. And that's going to get much more profitable and better margins over time as well. Like their gross profit as a company was up to 645 million versus 206 million the year before in quarter one. So while they're still growing all over the world, added two new business legs and really expanded into an entire new continent, 
they still returned a much higher gross profit, but that money just went right back into developing the company more. So I think the management's going to continue to invest the profits into new businesses. And it's really great that they only lost 320 million this quarter, excluding stock-based comp. So, and that was on purpose, right? So that's what you want to see. You've got the founder owning 25% of the shares, insiders and Tencent own another 50%. And so for me, I think it's really, really important to understand that this thing's got the best backing in a really great country that you don't have to worry about. It's not in China, but it affects a lot of the countries around there and a lot of the countries around the world that have yet to be penetrated by e-commerce, payment processing, infrastructure, gaming, everything, right? Like we have a cell phone, you skip DVD and you go straight to Blu-ray from VHS. So I think they're capturing that entire audience and this is not even the beginning. Let's wrap SE up because we just talked about that literally for two hours, I believe. So coming into season two, we're going to start this new thing every single week where we pick one question from the audience based on how many likes they got, right? So it's kind of like Reddit. If you like a question, you want to hear that question read, just hit a like button on that person's and they'll win. So this week's winner is Nolan Stocks. So at Stocks, 94556975. It's kind of like that Greg (laughs) guy in a way. Um, But he's asking for the next decade, if you could only hold five stocks, what stocks are you holding? Yeah, and this definitely goes to the other question too that got like the second most likes of like what's in Tony's portfolio. So I'm going to just give these answers based on themes. I think every stock will probably be different for different people, but 100% I'm going in genomics. And you know, we talk about like five or six different names depending on risk. Like that's my basket of genomics. So one genomic stock has to go in there. I'm a big fan of space. I think like people are underestimating how cool it's going to be and how much business is going to be happening from that. Like just think about asteroid mining, like done. That's enough for me to be interested Definitely artificial intelligence, quantum computing. So like, you know, hopefully something like IonQ comes out that's like a little better and further along or I'll wait for that company to expand. But I do want something in the quantum computing realm. Once again, like I love SC. That's definitely probably going to be a stock I hold for years just because I think it's like the strongest of the horsemen. And for me, it's really hard for me to sell something like that, which I think is just growing faster than expectations. So a lot of companies are growing really fast, but the expectations are catching up and SC continues to beat estimates almost every time. And honestly, if I had to be like, probably, I guess we're going a little riskier. Let's throw one of the crypto vibes in here. Like I'm still a big fan of Ethereum. I think Ethereum 2.0, like 1559 protocol is going to be pretty fire. So I'm a fan of that moving forward in the future. I think it's already such a big network that's going to be really, really hard for that to get disrupted by a smaller name. But once again, it can happen. All right, Tony, let's throw a little extra one because this is such a funny story. What, what's your beef with Goldman Sachs? That's from Luke Ugh. at Go for 10 x Besides the fact that their analysts are dog shit and like a lot of the shit they do is scummy, I don't even care. Like I'll just say it because like I remember back in the day when Tesla was just first coming out, right? They were pissed because Morgan Stanley got the Tesla IPO and they made so much more money off of that. Goldman people were literally like against Tesla and dropping analyst price targets. Tesla's going to like 50 or 95 or whatever. Like now they're the ones who are upgrading like Tesla 600, 700, 900. So first of all, they're wrong and they're dumb. Second, I had a competition when I was in college and I did a pair trade. So I went long NVIDIA, short Intel. You can check that out on afterthebell.io. I posted that on there for you guys. But basically I walked in there and I gave the exact identical price target and they said it was going to 129. I literally wrote 129 was on my paper for my presentation and I didn't get first place. And maybe that's because the first thing I did when I walked in the meeting was say, hey, like, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but you and I have the same price target. Like, I think this is this is over. But either way, they chose Home Depot. So fuck that. (laughs) We are back, man. It feels so good. Like season two starting. It's it's crazy that season one is ending. And next week, we're going to be introducing some new sections called Pounding in Private where we're just going to start interviewing some CEOs and leaders from some of the most interesting companies we think, you know, will be the future IPOs, right? 
We'll also be bringing Feature back mini monsters, mini monsters. Of course, you just stole my line there. All right. My fiance started cooking behind me. So it sounds like it's time to, to wrap up the show, but it feels so good to be back, man. This is, this is absolutely incredible that we did a full season last year. And, you know, next week we're excited. We're going to be pounding the table again, actually introducing a new section called pounding in private. That's where we'll be uh, interviewing CEOs and leadership from some of the most interesting companies that we see as the potential future IPOs. We've brought together this team. We got even a TikTok right now. We've got the Twitter, of course. We may even open up an Instagram. Shit is popping off and we could not be more excited for season two. But Tony, as always, wrap the show up. As we always say, you are where you are. And that's very important because we are at season two of Pounding the Tables. So as we said last week, it's going to be a refresh. We're bringing back all the goodness of season one, but with definitely some refined and matured insights that we're happy here to share with you guys every single week. I know that the rest of this year is going to be crazy. I think we have to make sure to remember one thing, like I'm always learning. Everyone's always learning. And it's very important to understand that the only way to get better is to get better. Right? Like everyone looks for the magic solution. I'm not the magic answer. Avi's not the magic solution. No one on Twitter is. The only person that can actually tell you how to invest and do well is yourself. So make sure before you really dive into season two with us and before you really dive into the markets at all, look at yourself in the mirror and figure out who you are and who you want to be for season two. Because I'll tell you what, if you don't look back every birthday and say, I don't know who the fuck that guy was, you didn't live a good year. With that being said, Pounders, We'll be back and we'll be bringing you the best of years. So pound that table and come join us next week. Y'all on level one, on level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex, I'm making big moves. Like that's the end of the game there. And I don't mean, I keep wanting to kill Mealy. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big Fucking, I'm stuttering. That's dude. I have too much money. Cuban coffee, man. Yeah. Play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm bad about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I need a few accounting. Sock is rising. Perfect timing. I'm in prickle with the tribe. Shawty sliding. She wants sushi. She wants eel sauce with the rice. I just peel off the